Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Charting Your Course podcast. On today's episode, I sat down and talked with Charlie Marrow, who is the CEO of Marrow Manufacturing. Recently, his company became the number one producer of PPE in the United States, and that is just one facet of his incredibly successful career. Charlie Marrow is a Tabor Academy alumnus, and in today's episode, he shared just how he quickly transitioned his company into producing PPE and also shared the most valuable skills a teenager should learn. Here's my interview with Charlie Marrow. So Charlie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad you could come on. To start, as I said in the intro, you went to Tabor Academy, which is also the same school that my last guest, Kate O'Neill, was at and is also the same school that I'm currently attending. So my first question that I like to ask all my guests is what were your early upbringings like and how did they lead you to attending Tabor? My early upbringings? Yeah. Well, I grew up in, I grew up in Marion for a significant part of my life. So I'd been around Tabor quite a bit, but I think I, you know, I think I, I ended up at Tabor because it's a terrific opportunity to be, be part of something that was a heck of a heck of an education and a, and a heck yeah. of a community. I didn't realize then how important it, it was going to be, but I would, I would argue today that it was, it was among the most important things that's happened to me. Yeah, I found that a common trend with the guests I've interviewed so far that their prep school experience has been super formative for them. So I'm happy to hear that from you as well. And so moving on from your upbringing to your actual time at Tabor, what were you like as a student and what extracurriculars did you participate in or any activities, sports, clubs? What was I like as a student? I was a I was an average student. I, I rode. I was particularly involved in the crew program. Oh, nice. Uh, while I was at Tabor, unfortunately, as a freshman, the winter of my freshman year, I was in a pretty rough skiing accident, and broke my femur. And so oh, I spent the spring that. of my freshman year. I remember being in AP biology. And uh, my mother was my mother had to take me to class in a wheelchair. Interestingly, I did better in that AP class than I think I did any at any other time at school. I, I was so it was it was a strange time for me. It was a yeah. it was a, a rough experience for a young kid. And when I recovered, when I recovered, I found I found a terrific degree of satisfaction in the in the crew program for extracurriculars. Yeah, was, uh, we went to we went and rode in England. It was uh, an absolutely fabulous experience. Oh, were you the uh, trip that went to the Henley? Yeah, wow. we did. We rode in Henley. In fact, as a point of distinction, I believe, and I don't know, I don't know if, if it's since been broken, but we were we were involved in the closest race, certainly of that year. But I think in that cup, we won, uh, we won by one foot in just about the most exciting uh, race of my life. That's for sure. Wow. Yeah, and the reason I asked that was also because I. Well, I was supposed to do crew last year, but of course, COVID came. So really didn't get a chance to, but we have a connection there in the sport and I'm really excited to do crew. I think it's really interesting sport and really late development too. When did you, when did you start rowing crew? Late. I mean, I, I did it after I recovered from the, from the skiing accident. So I started, yeah. I started when I was 16. Wow. And you know, the thing about it, when I look back at Tabor, there are elements of that education that, that I, I missed you know, because I was a kid and I, I didn't recognize some of the things that were really valuable and important. In retrospect, I, I'm incredibly grateful that I did get to, to row. The rowing coach then, a man who's, who's no longer with us named Bart Nurse, was, was such a motivational and informative educator. And, and what I learned in rowing and what I learned in, in, 
the discipline of, of, of the sport, but I also what I learned in, in the community of, of that crew program was, was unmatched. I think yeah. certainly in any other athletic, any other, other athletic team or, or exercise I've been involved with, but that was something very unique to Tabor. And it was something that was so well supported and nurtured. And it, it wasn't just a, a prep school sport. It really yeah. was a discipline and another, another element of the education that really is unique to the school. Definitely. And another question about Tabor. Do you believe attending Tabor set you up for success in your college life? No, I don't. <laughs> um, and no, and, here, and here's why. Here's yeah, why. I'm interested uh, to hear what you have to say about yeah. this. I have, I have pretty strong opinions about this, as it turns out. I think that the, the academic work that you do at Tabor is, is, it can be pretty extraordinary. It, it, puts, it puts everyone at an advantage in most, in most areas when you, when you leave. And I certainly, I mean, schools constantly change. I can't speak to where, what Tabor is doing today, but while I was there, the personnel, the teachers who I was involved with, there was an energy and an an interest in the student body that was, that was unmistakable. And, and we all benefited from that. But when we left and we moved, we moved into environments where, which were demanding, but not not necessarily as demanding maybe, or, or we, we were, I had gained a lot at Tabor and I, I didn't gain as much when I went to university. And, and I, you're talking to someone that went and sailed around Newfoundland. I went up to Greenland on a boat. Oh, um, wow. I, 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 I left Tabor and, and adventured, but the, the part of the part of Tabor that set me up to be successful has nothing to do with university. It had to do with it had to do with a preparedness in some way, you know, and not not entirely, yeah. but for for a lot of the things that I was going to do that were really fulfilling. So I would credit Tabor. I mean, another way you could ask a question is, you know, is, is Tabor in, in part the successes that I've had? Would I credit them back to Tabor? And I think I think without any question, yeah, I, it was one piece of a puzzle that that I that I've been able to use to be successful. But I actually found it. Terribly disappointing because I went to university and and it was not as it didn't require as much of me as Tabor. Yeah, definitely. I that's really interesting. I love I love your viewpoint and perspective on that. It's very different from all of our other guests, but that's great to hear. Just some variety there. I'm actually that was actually really interesting. And so, kind of moving on after your Tabor experience, what was your first job either during or when you got out of college? My first job was in inside sales at a company, at a startup. My first real job was a job in inside sales for a startup outside of Boston, just as the dot-com fever was reaching peak, peak fever. And my my first job, which started in inside sales in, in very short order, I recognized that there were important parts of it of a company that is involved in technology. And if you understand technology, you have a terrific advantage. And, and I ended up within, I think within a year, I was opening up their West Coast office. Wow. And running and running the West Coast sales, sales and engineering group for the company. In part, that was that was a moment in time where, where there was not dissimilar to today, where there was just a terrific irrational uh, exuberance is what Alan Greenspan called it. The expectation that these companies were going to go up and up and up and up and up yep. and that, that collapsed not too long after I opened up the West coast office. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because 
you're obviously what you're doing right now is completely different from that. So it's, it's cool to see your progression from your first job to what you're working on now. And, you know, how did you weigh the pros and cons, speaking of your job now, of staying with your family business or versus going and starting your own new venture? It is my own new venture. I, I bought the family business in 2004. I was never, I was never asked or pressured or, or it was never even extended to me to participate in the Merrill company, I can say without any qualification, uh, until I was in my mid-20s, early 20s, it wasn't even a thought. And then, and with this again, you know, one of the things you learn at Tabor is preparedness. Preparedness is the key to success. And yeah. I, had, I had been preparing to be successful. I was an ambitious guy. I was, a, I was a creative guy. And it just so happened that in the early 2000s, this, the old manufacturing company, which had been around for 160 something years was under a terrific deal of stress and pressure. And there was going to be a change. And I saw an opportunity um, and I actually went and met with one of uh, Tabor alum. This is a true story. When I was, I was sitting on the floor of my father's office and I heard him talking about this company being purchased Merrow. And I asked him for the financial reports to see what it was. I was curious about it. And I went and had lunch with one of my favorite people in the whole world who graduated from Tabor a couple of years before me, a man named John Arms, one of the, one of the best people who's, who's ever been. And John and I sat down at a, at a burrito shop in New Bedford, and I, I explained what I was looking at. This old company had these things. Yep. And John is one of the smartest people I ever knew. And he patiently explained to me that if I could possibly, possibly put a deal together where I didn't take on the union, the Brownfield toxic waste site or the enormous debt that the company was under. It was a fantastic opportunity. And seriously, he was right. And I managed to put a deal together that attended all of those things, but he was a great mentor uh, and somebody that I look up to my, uh, you know, my entire life. I looked up to him and he was, but I first knew him at Tabor. I didn't know who he was. I just knew of him, John Arms. Wow. That's great that you had a connection that helped you later in life from Tabor. I've also seen that that's a pretty common trend through our guests. And it's a really, really interesting story. So kind of moving on towards life advice, what skills would you recommend a high schooler learn to become a high performer in life, such as yourself, just any skills? What would you recommend? What would be one of those skills that somebody my age should learn? Very few people write well. One of the things that has afforded me opportunity that has been not offered to other people has been a function of writing. And I think that whatever people want to do, whatever it is that makes them, you know, none of us know what it is. We just kind of, we move through the world and we try to, we try to make every day be something that's rewarding and, and, and useful. If, if creating opportunity and, and, and moving through the world easily is an objective writing, is, a, is this discipline, it's, it's something I learned at Tabor, something I learned at Friends Academy before Tabor, but certainly I learned it at Tabor. And it is the differentiating skill in, in, in every environment, being able to write well, being able to adapt your writing to, to the situation that you're in is the discipline. Yeah. Everything else you layer on top of that, but if you have that, you have this foundational, you have this foundational skill that it, it creates, it'll create opportunities for you. Yeah, so- My advice. So writing, writing in what sense would you say writing to people or just writing in general, expanding your vocabulary? Like, well, yeah, so writing. So we, we have, we have 400 something people that work for us now. And, and I've spent my career poorly interviewing people. The number of people who I've interviewed in 20 years who write really well, 
whether it's the the paragraph that's just in the resume, yeah, or it's a writing sample, or it's a, they're working for me and writing letters to, to customers or whatever it is. It's very, very few. And so you're, I understand your question. My answer is unfortunately can't be can't be super specific. Yeah, writing is a skill that you practice across many different disciplines. And being good at it is a function of grammar. It's a function of vocabulary. It's a function of tone and pitch, but structure, you know, structure, yeah. practicing to communicate ideas succinctly, clearly, getting rid of language in writing rather than adding it to writing. These are, these are the things that I'm talking about. And it, yeah, it, it, it's something that it appears in correspondence. It appears in, in proposals. Yeah, but that it's that concise. It's communicating clearly in writing, and it's something that is, you know, in twenty years, I've watched the reasons for it to be important and useful change. But as as a as a fundamental skill, it remains something that's very yeah. very important. And I can see why that would be very important for a interviewer like yourself. I think just reading a well-written, structured resume, structured, really not even a resume, just well, well-written well anything is, I believe, to me, it, it just portrays a higher sign of intelligence and just a better, better understanding of how to connect things. And so also, you know, you've talked a bit about advice and meeting with people, but what's the best, what, this is going to be a really loaded question. So sorry to put you on the spot like this, but what is the best piece of advice you think you've ever received? It's a very on the spot <laughs> question. So I apologize. That's, that's fine. I think as it relates to work, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever, I ever received. My father, my father didn't work with us for very long. He realized my brother and I run the company and he, and he, backed away from it to give us the freedom to, to screw up a lot, which we, which we took full advantage of. But one of his pieces of advice that never left me is, is that you're going to get screwed by people. And in the business, in the business, of, we're, in, we're in the business of textile equipment and textiles and things like this, but it, it really translates to nearly any industry. Yeah. <clears throat> if you're in the industry for the long, long haul, you are, you're very rarely rewarded for being angry or punitive. And if you wait long enough, typically you're going to see that person or that company or that, you know, it's going to resurface and you're going to have an opportunity to earn back whatever it is you've lost. And it's not always true. No, nothing is always true. But generally speaking, I think this advice to, to recognize that you're going to skin your knee a lot, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to get hurt. And the reactions, the reactions to be patient and not punitive and wait and, and, build a relationship for the long term and not and not and not just not, not burning bridges reactive. I guess this was this was the best piece of business advice I think I experienced because I use it all the time. Yeah. Um, connections are connections are super valuable, especially in business and just knowing people is just I think it's true with I think it's true yeah. I think it's true all over though. I think that yeah definitely you know, practicing practicing not being reactive and taking taking something on the chin and just being better than the reaction over a period of time, it, it becomes a benefit. It doesn't, yeah. it, it doesn't, you don't gain much from the reaction generally. And now it's not always true. Yeah, yeah definitely. So, so do my, 
That's a, that's a fantastic piece of advice. And so moving on from that piece of advice, you obviously have a lot going on in your life with your busy schedule. So how do you typically organize a day or what's a, what's a typical day like for you? How do you structure it in a way that's most effective and you can get the most things done? Google Calendar. <laughs> I, I mean, I, and I don't mean to be flipping yeah, about it. Yeah, definitely. The, I, the, there are a couple of things that I do. One is I try to move almost as much communication as I possibly can into uh, WhatsApp chat groups because there's so many people I'm communicating with and it's a, yeah. it's a far easier thing to, to do multitasking, to be able to, to, to do. So I think that there's some, some part of organizing the day is a function of trying to create efficient paths of, of, for information to get to me and for me to get information out. So that's, that's one. And by the way, these are all hard fought. You know, I'm constantly trying to get better at this. Something else is making sure that everything drops into a calendar. If it's in the, if the rule is if it's in a calendar, it exists. It's it's a it's a whole act of a lot easier to jump from thing to thing to thing. Yeah, um, and it's a simple rule, but man, it's, it makes a difference. But I also think there is a there's another piece of it. What I what I do, and and it's not for this short interview, but you know, if I could just describe one of my days to you, it's they're they're kind of wild. Yeah, they they require a flexibility, and they really do. It requires it requires requires to get the most out of a day requires constantly reprioritizing and, and giving time to you for this interview is important to me. And it's important for me not to be reacting to my phone buzzing. And because that that matters that, that required me pushing some things around in an, in a disorganized way. But I think Mm -hmm. that that's, that's also how I personally get a lot out of a day is by there's a constant triage. I'm constantly trying to figure out what's, what is more important and what's not. And again, you know, you don't, you stay up late, you, you know, you get up early, you stay up late. There's a yeah. lot to do. And I, I appreciate that you value the importance of this interview. I think you're definitely some, from what you've said so far, inspiring a lot of young high schoolers and a lot of Tabor students as well. So a 2020 Yahoo Life article wrote that your company, I'm sure you've seen that article at this point, but that your company has swiftly become the largest producer of US sourced PPE, which by the way, is a tremendous accomplishment. So congratulations on that. But how did you transition so quickly from your previous operations to producing 700,000 gallons per week as they quoted? There's a short version. Yesterday, I was was speaking at Brown about this this very thing, because I think it's a complicated, it's worth spending time teaching this. It's worth spending yeah. time understanding it. And it's a class, a class focused on the COVID response it incorporates a lot of different elements of it, but one of them would be how we did, you know, what, what we did. And the answer to your question is that there was a lot of talk about pivoting and that's not what Merrill did. I mean, it sort of is, but it's not really what we did. In, in yeah. 2004, Owen and I rebuilt the Merrill Manufacturing, the Merrill Sewing Machine Company. In 2008, the financial crisis hit, and we watched our thing that we had just built crater behind capital markets freezing up. And instead of us you know, crying in our Cheerios, we created a startup incubator, and we built 14 companies during wow. the financial crisis, and incidentally hired some of the, some of the best people I've ever worked with because nobody had jobs. And, and we did this. So Mer- we are entrepreneurs, and we are, we are people Definitely. who... We, we are scrappy, we fight, but we're creative and we, and we, and we build, you know, we, we love building things. In 2016, we came up with a plan to build manufacturing of instrumented soft goods, which is a fancy way of saying, let's, let's make things, let's digitize things that we can sew. Yeah. Uh, the hypothesis is that if we build binary data around these soft goods, hot, cold, up, down, on, off, these sorts of things. 
things, we can create a lot of value. Anyway, so we, we in order to do this, we assembled, we bought up companies and we, and we built, built a company that, that leveraged a lot of the knowledge capital that was in the South Coast of Massachusetts. This, is a, you know, this was once the biggest manufacturing, this is manufacturing mecca of just about everything. Yeah. From 2016 until 2019, we built this company up to be this powerful engine to pivot into this other space. And we did it by building workforce training programs, by investing in equipment, by, by nurturing and working with the community to, to get people excited about working in manufacturing jobs, by reforming transportation. We have four bus stops now outside of Merrow in downtown Fall River because I, I am so determined to, to create access with the success. You know, if people can't wow. get to work, yeah. what's the point? You know, this idea that you build something out in an industrial park is great for everybody who's got a car, but what about the, the 40,000 people that don't? You know, I, yeah. so we feel really strong about some of these issues like early childhood and, and transportation and things like this. So anyway, 2016, 2019, we're building this thing to do this thing and COVID happens just as we're getting ready to launch this big initiative. And we just happen to be, it's like a, yeah, it's like a, you know, we were, we were at a track meet we were lined up to go run a race and, and, you know, just as the gun went off, they said, no, run that way instead of this way. Yeah. And that's, that's really what happened. So that was, that was the, the simplest version of how we did it so quickly. A total now, pivot. It was ugly and it was a mess and it's not over. You know, the thing that I, you know, if I could impress anything on the, the folks at Tabor right now, it's that this supply crisis is not over. My last 24 hours, I didn't get much sleep last night because we're working in the world of nitrile gloves that nobody can get. We are, we are, you know, we were on the phone with the White House last week as we try to put together a, this really innovative program in medical but there's no, there's no real federal support. There's no organized support. This thing is real and it's contemporary. It's not, it's not a, a last year thing. It's a today thing. Yeah. That, anyway, that sort of answers your question. I hope. No, that was, that was super impressive. Yeah. Just how you're, you're innovating. And I think every single person listening to this was completely blindsided by COVID and nobody could have predicted uh, what happened last year. But the fact that you completely captured the moment and and just helped a lot of people is really inspiring. And I know we are sort of getting close to the end here, but I just have a few more questions. So you're the CEO of a successful company. You're an advisory board member I saw on your LinkedIn page uh, for the Charlton College of Business and a wide variety of other roles. But you know, what would you say is your biggest accomplishment in life? Another loaded question. But if you had to pick one thing, what would you, what would you say? It's a very oh, hard question. Um, Especially with your life. That's fun. That's a good question. Yeah. My biggest, I mean, my biggest accomplishment is, is, is the things I've built. I don't think it's the things, I mean, this, this, the company that Owen and I have made is my biggest accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, The farm that I'm sitting in right now is, 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 you know, is part of that. And I've built, I've built things I'm real proud of. And I think that we've, I think that we have taken up, we have, we have built a company that takes seriously this role of being a leader in the community and, and, and pushing issues that are, you know, not, not in line with the capitalist interest of the company in direct, you know, directly, but indirectly, I argue they are, but I think that, you know, I'm, I'm most proud of the fact that our company is a company that is very much about the people. It's very much in a, a company that has organized itself to support issues that support people in the community, and these and it's it's very rewarding to do that. It's you no, know, I'm not saving the world, but I'm I'm certainly trying to make some people's life 
a little bit better. Which I think you've, and, uh, I think you've definitely done find, so far. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's definitely i can can totally see why and just as a parting question what you've talked about writing but if you could give just one more piece of advice to your 16 year old self what would it be move more move more i mean i think that there's no there is what if i i've practiced for 20 years professionally failing you know doing things and having them not work and i i think that the adventures are not the successes they're the they're all the things we do. And, and my 16 year old self, when I was 14 years old and I guess yeah, 14 and I, and I got hurt you know, I was a fearful kid for a while and, and I, it happened. I mean, it's part of what shaped me, but my 16 year old self was recovering from being a really fearful and I was never a fearful person. And then I, and I became one because I broke myself and, and I, you know, and, and I was going through, I was 16 you know, and I was 16 and I wasn't able to run. It was, it was, it was terrible. It felt terrible, but that's, that would be it. You know, what, what I tell yeah. 16 is 16 is nobody really cares. You know, when you feel like everybody's looking at you, nobody's really looking at you. You know, when you feel like, when you feel like you tripped and the whole world is, is, is giggling, nobody's giggling. Everybody's preoccupied with Facebook or something else. You know, <laughs> yeah. and the, the stakes of the stakes of screwing up are so low, you know, get on stage, go make a mess of things. I've learned to do that as I've gotten older, but that's, that's the, that's where you find all of the good stories. Everything comes. I mean, right now I'm talking to you and I've got a busted arm and it's because I've got a farm and, and, and I've got a story about how that happened. <laughs> the, the adventuring is the process yeah. at 16. Nobody really cares. You know, they might get mad at you. They might be happy with you, but it's, it's much, much more fun to go out and trip and fall than it is to sit on the couch. Definitely. And I acknowledge the fact that I'm being hypocritical here, but a lot of, a lot of teenagers, myself included failing and just embarrassing yourself is a really big fear and something that is probably one of the worst parts about being a teenager is you always feel like the spotlight's on you, but that's, that's great advice. Just not caring about what you do, not caring about failing because nobody really is paying attention. That is such great advice. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Charlie. That was just terrific. I think my audience got a lot of valuable insight from what you just had to say. And I hope this interview helped all of you in the audience be able to better chart your own course in life. So I will see you in the next episode. Thank you.